Eight years of traveling the world by motorcycle seems like a lot, but actually, Sam's done a lot more traveling than that. Before and after his eight-year motorcycle adventure are numerous other trips and adventures that are rarely heard about. And for a guy that's had as many mishaps, misadventures, and accidents as he's had, he's self-described as accident-prone, he has the outlook of the luckiest man in the world. Sam Manicom is a household name in adventure motorcycling. He's a travel advocate, a motorcycle enthusiast, and despite how things have gone wrong for him from time to time, he refuses to view things from the dark side. Today I'm sitting down with Sam Manicom to talk about travel, motorcycle life, what drives him, and how he dealt with an explorer's life when his kidneys shut down and dialysis became his daily reality. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Before we get started, I want to thank these fine companies that helped get this episode out today. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter. It's free, maxbmw.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. I'm Sam Well, for us adventure motorcyclists, Sam Manicom needs little introduction. He's a well-known advocate for travel, motorcycle travel. He spent eight years rolling around the globe on his R80GS, which he still has, by the way. He's written countless articles for magazines and websites. He is a regular co-host on our other show that we do here, a monthly show called Raw, ARR Raw. He wrote four books about his eight-year journey around the world, which are both in paper and in audiobook form. They are in order. Into Africa, Under Asian Skies, Distant Suns, Tortillas to Totems. Sam lives in the UK, which is where I caught up with him today. Well, hello everybody. My name is uh, Sam Manicum and um, I live in the UK at the moment, or I'm based here. And uh, I'm a travel writer, um, motorcycle overlander and an author. Sam, great to get you back on the show. Uh, it's fantastic to be back on again. Thanks for inviting me, Jim. Sam, what what is your travel philosophy? <sighs> and you weren't going to ask me any difficult questions. <laughs> My travel philosophy is to go out into the world with as an open mind as possible, um, 
to bin preconceived ideas because they're inevitably wrong or they're biased by somebody's business and to treat people with as much respect as I possibly can until they prove that I they don't deserve respect. And just following this open-minded, open-hearted way of traveling opens up a phenomenal number of opportunities. And it gives me the chance to have um, happy travels instead of um, stressful um, days that roll one to the next. Now, that's really in-depth and thought out, that philosophy. How has that changed from now, from what you're saying, to when you first left on your round-the-world trip? What was your travel philosophy then? Um, don't fall off and hurt yourself. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a riding philosophy. That's not a travel philosophy. No, well, I mean, I said that in part and jest. Uh, because I was such a novice motorcyclist, and I, I guess I'm better known for um, the eight-year trip that I did around the world on a motorcycle, but I traveled in quite a lot of different ways before that. My first solo trip was when I was 16 years old, and I think then I was so wet behind the ears, I had no idea what I was doing. My map was a rubbish scale. I got lost a lot, but I learned from that trip not to worry about making it to a destination to enjoy what I was getting involved with along the way. And that taught me to travel slowly and not to put myself under pressure. And that's pretty much stayed with me through all the other journeys. Well, at 16, your parents mm-hmm. were good with you traveling by yourself at 16. Where'd you go? My parents are absolutely fantastic. And I've been traveling for most of my life in one way or another. My parents um, moved around a lot. Um, but I had been working... Um, uh, doing odd jobs and a, a newspaper round and save my pocket money and all of this sort of stuff. And I bought myself a, a brand new bicycle. All my bicycles until that time had been sort of rusty clunkers, which I'd um, um, bodged and made work and all the rest of it. But they were never much fun to ride. So there I had this wonderful, gleaming, brand new bicycle. And I was looking at it and thinking, right, okay, so what are you going to do? Just ride me, ride it to school. And I'm sure it was looking back at me and asking me the same question because it, it deserved much more than that. But um, school holidays were coming up. And I thought, well, actually, you've got six weeks. Why not go and do something completely different? What are you going to do? And with the innocence of youth, I thought, well, I'll go and ride through Europe, see how far I get. And so I borrowed a page out of my school atlas and cycled to the coast, which was, you know, 100 and something miles away. Got lost quite a few times on the way there. Eventually found myself at the right port and bought a ferry ticket and climbed on board and got off the other side in Holland and off I went. This is when you were 16? Mm-hmm. Okay, so before this, before, before you did this trip when, when you were 16 years old, what was life like as a kid for you in your house? Well, we lived in quite a lot of different houses. I was actually born in the Congo, which is now called the um, Democratic Republic of Congo, which unfortunately I rather cynically call the not-so-democratic Republic of Congo. But there's a lot of history with that. Um, and it's a great place to, to grow up as a kid. My parents moved around um, quite a lot. Um, and I used to wear shorts most of the time, barefoot, flip-flops, played football barefoot. We used to run out and into the bush, and most of my mates were black kids. Um and it was just fantastic. But age 10, um, when President Mobutu came into power and things had been going absolutely pear-shaped in the country, um, my parents decided that it was time to head back to the UK. One of my sisters was at boarding school in the UK and she wasn't particularly happy. You know, she missed the whole family. It was myself and my two younger sisters in Africa with my mother and father. 
Um, but uh, yeah, back to the UK we went and age 10, um, what a strange little boy I must have been um, in comparison to the other kids. Mm. I was known, known as Jungle Boy for the first few years of being back. I, mean, I was used to eating tropical fruits, you know, pineapples and mangoes and guavas and bananas and all those sorts of things. Those, these things grew wild. But not in the UK. But that was all right. I had apples and we didn't have apples very often in the Congo. So um, swapped the tree. But I didn't know um, the music. I mean, Beatles, who are they? Yeah, this tells you how long ago it was. Um, but That's a know, group, just for like, those who don't know. The Beatles are a group. I think they were somewhat popular in some time period. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely put, Jim. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, we came back to the UK age 10 and then it was a case of really settling in and learning a completely new culture. And I think this was one of the things for me that taught me not to fear travel, but to embrace it and enjoy it because new places, new cultures, new people, they're always fascinating. You, you mentioned about your, your parents had moved around. You lived in quite a few houses. What did your parents do that you're moving around so much? Well, when when my um, parents were in Africa, the last section of the time that they were they were there, my father was um, headmaster of a medical college, so doctors and nurses being taught. When they got back to the UK, do you know, I keep meaning to find out how old he was, but I think it was something like forty-five. Um, they arrived back in the UK with fifty pounds in the bank, um, the clothes that we stood up in, and the clothes that we had on our suitcases. And my father was not allowed to step onto the teaching ladder in the UK using any of his experience. He had to start as if he'd just come out of t um, teacher training college, which must have been hugely difficult for them. Um, Western prices for kids and, you know, very little behind them. Now, the only way that my father could get promotion was to move from one school to the next. So, yeah, we moved quite a lot. Mm, so your, your parents are Congolese? No, 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 they're English. Um, without doubt. Um, my father was um, a cockney from the east end of London and um, my mother was the daughter of a pharmacist up in the, in the Malvern area. Mm, that's an interesting way to describe somebody. One's a cockney and the other one's a daughter of a pharmacist. What, what's mm. a cockney? Um, a cockney is somebody who lives um, within the sound of the Bow Bells in the east of London. Um, and uh, cockneys are very proud of their status. It's, it's almost like a clan, a big um, extended family. And it's less so now. But, um, you know, 50, 60 years ago um, and more, then, yeah, it was a very, very close thing. You know, this is what I find interesting about the UK. There's, a, there's It's a fairly small spot and you've got so many different cultural things. Like when you said a cockney is somebody who can hear the bow bells. What are, what are the bow bells? Uh, I tell you, look it up, Jim. You're going to have to look well, it up. Well, that doesn't help us this, for this interview, the, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, the bow bells. They're, they're in um, a church in the East End of London. And when you could hear their ring, then you had a right um, to call yourself a, a cockney. Ah, wow. That's interesting. That's just, just incredible. You know, you, you mentioned that you, you moved to 10 years old um, from mm. the Congo to the UK. And you also mentioned that that sort of made it so that you weren't afraid of travel and, and that change. Were you afraid before you left the Congo? Like when they said, okay, we're going to leave. Did, was it all apprehension, the thought of going to the UK? No, I don't think it was. I think it was more a case of excitement. Um, the apprehension grew within the first few weeks of um, being in this very, very strange situation. 
and having to wear a blazer and a shirt and a tie and um, heavy heavy cotton um, wool make shorts and a cap and um, all of those sorts of things that was just such an alien thing for me it, the other sorts of things that were alien were not only did I not know the culture but as a kid I'd been, I, I thought I was pretty good at football soccer um, but I'd played barefoot and suddenly in this chilly country where football is played in the winter, everybody's playing wearing lumps of leather on the ends of their legs. And that to me was such a strange thing to do. I was absolutely rubbish until the sportsmaster could see how frustrated I was getting and would and let me play barefoot. Um, so, yeah, I'm, like I said, I was a strange little kid. <laughs> Just thinking that you, you came in weird, you, you straightened out and you made the full circle to kind of weird again. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> Where you sit right now. Hey, what, what, um, at what point and why do you turn to motorcycle travel? I mean, you, you've said that you started, you know, your first sort of trip, solo trip at 16 years old on your bicycle. Fantastic. And then all of a sudden you end up on a motorcycle down the road. Is, is this one of those cases of somebody who you're already a traveler? You're just looking for a, a new mode of travel or is there some other reason for the motorcycle to enter? You, you hit the nail right on the head there. From that first solo trip, I did all sorts of trips, um, a year here, a couple of years there. The longest was a three-year trip. Um, I hitchhiked around Europe for a year and a half, for example, sleeping under bridges and in parks and while camping wherever I could and doing mad things like when I was standing by the side of the road and not getting lifts, I had packets of um, wild flowers and I'd, I'd plant them just to keep myself occupied. So I, I just had a lot of fun. I backpacked in Australia for six months, um, bought an old car in Australia for a, and had that um, to rattle around in for a while. Um, bust and trained in India and so on. Um, so in the end, I sailed, I hiked, I bicycled, I bust, I trained, etc. And when the opportunity to uh, do a, a new trip came up, I was sitting thinking about all of the things that I don't like or didn't like about the other forms of transport. And don't get me wrong, I love them all, but everything, nothing is perfect, is it? So, for example, I really enjoyed sailing. I wasn't a very good sailor and I didn't do it for long. It was an experience, but what it taught me was that I like people. And when you're at sea, you're not meeting very many people. And when you're in um, the port, you're tending to rub, your sh rub shoulders with many people who are just like you. And so it's fairly narrowing in a way. Um, Riding a bicycle, well, yeah, you do trips where you ride for 12 days into a headwind and that after a while becomes a little bit jaded. And I, I was looking for some way that I could get around a little bit faster, be in a, a little bit more control of my day, meet more people, um, etc. And slowly it came round to, well, actually a motorcycle. And it had been the bottom of my list because as a teenager, I'd been banned from riding motorcycles by my parents. I think they knew me quite well, as in that I've always been a, a little bit of a boundary stretcher. And um, Is it, think, does it, Hang on, does that mean trouble? Yeah. <laughs> That's what I thought. It, it means that, you know, you get an opportunity to do something, you want to find out where the edge is. So I would have been one of those boys that went around that corner a little bit too fast and would have dinged myself probably quite badly. So my parents were very wise. But when I was going through the thought process of, well, actually, should I ride a motorcycle through Africa? I was thinking, God, how on earth do I tell my mother? <laughs> well, your parents were kind of correct because um, without jumping too far ahead here, I know that when you left, you left with no riding experience. So you did. You, you jumped in out of the frying pan into the fire, I guess you could say, or something like that. 
Absolutely. I'm, I'm a, a really positive thinker. I know that things will go wrong, but actually when something does go wrong, it is literally just the beginning of an unexpected adventure. And that sounds awfully cliched, but life just seems to be that way for me. Things do go wrong and they tend to go wrong fairly regularly. Um, but my eyes are instantly open thinking, well, okay, where's the silver lining? Um, what's going to pop up? And it always does. I hear people that do sort of different activities. You, you, I run across this fairly regularly doing this where, you know, they might spend a while hitchhiking, then they'll, you know, ride buses and then they'll ride a bicycle and then maybe they get a van or try a motorcycle. They try these different things. But but the difference with them and what I see with you is that they keep going. They're, they're trying all these different things. Why did you settle on the motorcycle? I mean, you said you you sailed and you rode your bicycle. And I know you're going to say that, oh, there's such wonderful or there's there's um, so many problems. You, you just finished saying there was, there were some problems that you didn't like about those other modes of travel. But there's people who will ride those modes of travel, like ride a bicycle, rather do those modes of travel where they would argue with you and say, no, this is far better than a motorcycle. There's no insurance. There's no carne. You know, there's so many advantages. So it's it's all perspective. What landed you permanently on the motorcycle? Because here you are all these years down the road, um, traveler first motorcycle a second do you know you you just hit a nail very firmly on the head with that comment one of the things that i love about life is that we're all individuals and if we realize that we're individuals and we allow ourselves to be individuals then um we just have so many opportunities and yeah people who are fascinated by riding bicycles and touring on bicycles um i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that it's what suits them as an individual and that's absolutely fantastic for me riding a motorcycle once I'd learned how not to fall off and how not to be afraid of it, then I started to realize what a wonderful sensation of freedom this, um, the bike was giving me. You know how when you're on a bus or a train and you're enjoying the view and uh, you're bumbling along and somebody else is taking responsibility and then all of a sudden you go back, you go past a site, a view or a side turning or a building and you just think, wow, look at that. And then you've gone. You can't get off to stop and look at it. Um, Africa's uh, about six and a half thousand miles long, and I ended up riding 22,000 miles because I could stop. I could take all of those side turnings. I could explore. The freedom the bike gave me was absolutely fantastic. It was also great not to have to carry a rucksack. What were you before you decided to to travel on the motorcycle? What were you doing? What was life about? Um when I got back from the three-year trip, I decided that actually... Whoa, um, whoa, hang on a second. You didn't mention anything about a three-year trip. What's that? <laughs> oh, I did a trip um, around Europe and then across to Australia and up through India and then back to the UK. And that's backpacking? Yeah, that was backpacking. Okay. Um, I was only supposed to be away for a year, but I kind of got in the swing of it, so kept on going. Well, hey, how old were you when you did that? Um, I guess I must have been about 22, something like that. So you, you went to school, you finished school, and you immediately head off for backpacking. Just quickly with that, how did you afford to do that? I worked like stinked. Um, didn't spend any money on anything that I didn't absolutely have to. Um, that three-year trip, though, I did come back with some pretty horrible credit card debts, and it took me a year to clear them, and i never done that since. 
Mm. I've always come back with money in my pocket. It was such a downer to be broke, not even to be able to afford to go out and have a beer with mates, not to have money to put down a deposit on somewhere to live and to pay the first month's rent, all of those sorts of things. It was such a bad decision. I mean, it was a buzz when I was out on the road. I was sucking the world dry. But to get back and have all of that debt and all of the disadvantages, no, I've never done it since. So you just Um, overspent on the trip? Yeah, I did. Mm. Um, Opportunities kept on coming up and um, I just kept on thinking, well, yeah, why not? Let's have a look. Let's have a go. Let's see what happens. It's funny because not everybody thinks that way. I mean, you, you, you know, we've talked about it on Raw before, and Grant mm. is the first one to say that um, that's what they did. They they ran up their credit card to go to the Antarctica. To them, it was well worth it to come back with the debt. I think if you're the sort of person you have a career that you're following that um, gives you the opportunity to earn good money very quickly, then it's less of a sweat. But I don't. And so whatever I do is going to take me quite a long time to pay um, significant debt back. Mm. So you, you came back, sorry, to, to jump back to what we we're talking about. You, you came back from this three-year trip, which must have been amazing in itself. That's three years mm. on the road. Um, what, hang on, was that a, a, um, a sort of a game changer for you? Because you did your trip when you were 16. I don't know if you've done anything in between there. Mm-hmm. But was that, was that a real game changer? I mean, that, that had to be. Um, I'd done a couple of other um, shorter trips, six months here and six months there in between time. Um, but the three-year trip, it was it was just filled with a world of possibilities. That was where I learned that every day I, I woke up, something special was going to happen. Something unusual was going to present it to me, an opportunity to learn, somebody interesting, um, a challenge, something exciting, some, and... and um, the bug well and truly bit from that trip. I can imagine that. So, okay, and the, you, you've returned from that. What gets you onto a motorcycle and what were you doing? Um, well, when I got back, uh, my training was in retail management. When I left school at 18, my grades weren't good enough from because we'd moved around and I'd spent so much time settling into new schools instead of studying. Um, my grades weren't very good. So there was no way I was going to go to university or college. So I went straight into retail and I managed to get myself on a management training course with one of the best department stores in the UK. And um, what good training it was. Fantastic. It taught me so many things. So when I came back from um, this three-year trip, I had this good solid entry on my CV. And even though I think um, potential employers were getting crosses and cloves of garlics out as they were stamping no on my CV applications, it was still standing me in good stead. And I ended up having an interview with just one guy applied for 26 jobs and had one yes for an interview. Wow. And uh, yeah, it was... That's a lot of applications. You, you, I, I have full understanding and empathy with anybody who is battling to get a job and is going through the whole process because it is, um, it can be soul destroying. Just continual knockbacks and being ignored and not not getting responses from people and all of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's it's really hard to to keep positive, and yeah, it's not easy. But um, I was very lucky with my interview. 40 minutes of grilling. And uh, this was in the days where um, lots of people smoked. And um, he uh, he said to me after 40 minutes, you wouldn't mind if I had a cigarette, would you? I said, no, no, not at all. Um, do you mind if I have one? 
He said, no, not at all. So he got out his um, his cigarettes and I got my roll-ups out. And I sat and rolled a cigarette and he sat and watched me and he said, I've always wanted to know how to do a roll-up cigarette. Would you teach me? So he spent the next quarter of an hour with me teaching him how to roll up cigarettes. Anyway, I thought, well, you know, it's it's just, it's become so unprofessional now. I haven't got the job, but it was interesting. What a nice guy. The job sounded great. Okay, what's next? But the next morning I phoned I spoke to his secretary and she said, no, I've just finished typing your letter. You've got the job. I said, good grief. Did I really? And she said, yeah. He came back saying, anybody who can teach me how to roll cigarettes can teach anybody anything. And I thought, well, <laughs> that's one of the skills of being a retail manager. You've got to teach people things. So, yeah, um, I got a job because of roll up cigarettes. Wow. That's that's pretty neat. Uh, you worked at that job for how long before you decide <laughs> before you get itchy feet? Gosh, I had itchy feet within about three years. Um, But um, I was just very, very conscious that um, I should get a career and I should have things in life that you're supposed to have. I should have the house. I should have the car. And so I thought, well, you know, you're you're at this age now. You should you should do that. And um, so I got stuck into it. And I did quite well in the job. I progressed through the different sizes of branches until I got to the number four store out of a thousand branches. And the next promotion was going to be a big one. It was to area manager. And um, that was the sort of time that I started to realize, actually, um, retail had become so cutthroat. I didn't really enjoy it anymore. And I thought, well, you know, you can't take a promotion. Um, you've got to do something different. And I was in the pub having a few beers and thinking about um, life. And that was when I realized, hang on a minute, you don't owe anybody any money. Your family are well. You've got no kids. You've got no pets. You've got no responsibilities. When are you ever likely to be this free again? Do something different. What are you going to do? And that was where um, beer got in the way. And a few beers later, I was thinking, well, actually, I'm going to ride a motorcycle through Africa. So I handed my notice in the next morning, passed my motorcycle test six weeks later. And six weeks after that, I was at the edge of the Sahara Desert thinking, Sam, you idiot, what are you doing? (laughs) Have you always been compulsive? (laughs) Um, No, I don't think so. Um, I tend to, to... treat things with common sense. But if I get the bee in my bonnet, then I do everything I can to make that idea work. If there are things that I come across that are huge stumbling blocks, then I'll find another way to do something or I'll find something else to do. I mean, I was kind of joking when I'm saying compulsive, but, but I mean, that is compulsive to, and you can blame it on the beer or whatever, but to just all, <laughs> all of a sudden pack it in. There must've been obviously more of a buildup there. And I'm sure you could go on talking about the the buildup at your work, but you've changed your thought process because you, you said you bought into the whole thing that we're all taught by society. You know, you, you buy a house, you get a mortgage rather than you buy the house and then you, you get the job and you have the kids and you get the dog and, and all those sorts of things. Something clicked there with you. And was it a poster of a motorcycle and a scenery or something behind the bar or what was it? Um, I think it was fatigue. The job that I was doing, um, I was working six days a week. I was usually in my store by seven o'clock in the morning and quite often I wasn't home until 11 o'clock at night. Sometimes I was working on a Sunday as well. Hey, the the branch and all of the people in it um, were my responsibility. The success of the branch was my responsibility. My commitment to the company was my responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. And 
if I take on a responsibility, then I treat it with full serious and seriousness and commitment. But I, I was just thinking, hang on a minute. When was the last time you went out and partied with your friends and the money that you're earning? You're not spending any of it because you haven't got any free time to go out and spend it. And where's the quality of your life gone? What about the things that you used to do that filled you with excitement and buzz? Um, and all of those things had just disappeared with under the weight of um, the commitment. Um, so, yeah, it was it was that that really started me thinking, actually, you need to analyze what you really do want out of your life and who you are. And retail management wasn't me. Well, the money must have empowered you as well. I mean, there's there's a certain thing where you're feeling in a position where you actually have that money. The bank said you weren't spending any and you have opportunity. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it was very nice. Um, no debt. That was that was a great feeling to be um, to be at. But you never answered the bike thing. Where does the bike come in? Because you haven't had this till now. Because you haven't had this. No, till it literally now. was going through all of the different forms of transport, um, buses and trains and sailing. Like you're sitting there at the bar, sort of writing it out and saying yep. bicycle, hiking. Yep, yep. That's exactly what I was doing. Um, and I think I was probably, I, yeah, I was on BF, just finished BF4 when I got to motorcycles. I think this would be a much better story if you come up with some sort of backstory for this. I, I would like to hear something that, you know, you came across a poster or you met this person that was really impressive on a motorcycle. You know, what, I, you mean a line of BS? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, you oh, add, right some, add some flavor. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I suppose to, there, there was always something in the back of my mind about I, I hadn't ridden uh, a motorcycle and I kind of fancied it. And I saw the guys shooting around on their bikes and, yeah, I, they always looked as if they were having an absolute ball on their bikes. And I also noticed the camaraderie of motorcyclists. And I thought, yeah, how cool is that? Mm. Um, these guys all look different to each other, but they're not because they're motorcyclists. And that means that they mean something to each other. And I suppose in my naivety out of the corner of my eye, when I was focusing on other things, I was picking up on that. And so, yeah, that probably, do you know, I've never really thought about it before. But yeah, that must have been ticking away um, in the back of my mind. You know, I know when you left on this trip, you left sort of woefully unprepared for motorcycle travel. Like you just mentioned, you didn't take lessons. You didn't learn how to ride the bike properly. What was the deal with that? Was it the, one of those cases where you don't know enough to know that you don't know enough? Or was it a case of, hey, you know, I'm Sam. I can, I can figure anything out on the go. What made you leave without doing sort of that part of your due diligence? Cool. I hope I'm not that arrogant. The, the last thing you said. Um, <laughs> well, I, I don't. I don't mean that in an arrogant way. But I'm just thinking. You know, like some people are confident. I, I think I'm pretty confident about things. And I'll look at something and think, okay, well, if somebody else can do it, I can certainly figure it out. Yeah. I mean, to a certain extent, that was involved. Um, I had one lesson um, on a motorcycle, and that was to teach me how to change gear. And that was in a, a school playground from an, an instructor. And once I'd learned that, and managed to get home and managed to get up into third gear while I was doing it. So I was quite pleased with myself. Uh, I think from that time onwards, it was just, uh, I was very conscious that if you're going to ride through Africa, you've got a time of year where you do not want to be in the Sahara Desert. And I knew that if I didn't crack on with getting ready to go, then I would miss this window of opportunity. And that really put the pressure on to do things in a hurry. Mm. I didn't have any friends who were motorcyclists. And back then there weren't forums and um, magazines would, you know, touch on um, motorcycle overlanding, but not in any great detail. So it was just a case of, we'll use all of the, the travel experience that you've got before, um, brush up your common sense, 
and go up, uh, go out and go slowly. Um, learn from your mistakes. And that was actually something that really stood me in good stead because every time I did something wrong, I took the time out to sit and think about what did I do that led up to me doing this wrong? And every time I did that, I learned a little bit and the chances of me making the same mistake again was pretty small and I didn't often. Are you talking about riding? Yeah, riding, for example. Every time you fall off, you fall off because you did something or you encountered a particular road surface that you didn't expect or you weren't concentrating properly or whatever else it might have been. But quite often what we find with that sort of thing is that we end up picking up our bad habits. We, we learn to do things that uh, may get us through something but aren't the correct way of doing it and can pose other problems. Have you since then went for training? I am absolutely a rubbish rider. <laughs> um, I, I, I know how not to fall off all of the time. And I've had one um, off-road um, training lesson with Lance Thomas. He and his brother, Sean, absolutely super people. Lance took me out um, for um, a morning's training and he was so patient with me and he was teaching me about standing up and using the weight on the foot pegs and, you know, all all of these sorts of things. Some of the things that I'd been doing but had no idea why I was doing and some things that I didn't have a clue about so I'd never done. I'd always sat down when I was riding on dirt roads because I didn't understand how much more control you've got when you're standing up. Um, And that one lesson taught me an awful lot. Funnily enough, I've just finished presenting a book signing at the London Motorcycle Show. And uh, one of the um, off-road training companies in the UK um, came over to me and said, um, words to the effect of, we hear that you're a rubbish rider. Would you like to come up and have some free lessons? Do you think that's that's a good approach on their part? (laughs) No, I'm I'm joking. They were much more professional about it than that. Bill Dragoo, who I know that you talked to um, just recently, he offered me the chance to do some training with them, but um, I couldn't get my travel insurance company to cover me for a training class. And yeah, well, um, oh, that's I am, interesting. I am an accident um, magnet, so um, yeah. I wasn't going to do anything that my insurance company was going to say, nope, um, 10 grand of hospital bills. Yeah, you pay that. You actually had to ask them. You contacted them and said, I'm, I'm thinking of taking a training course. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, absolutely. I, I didn't want any nasty surprises um, if something were to go pear-shaped. How do you feel now about um, the thought process of leaving l- like you did? And we still hear these stories where people will will get their license and they'll take off on a trip. And I mean, it's great if it works out, but if it doesn't, that, that's a different story. How do you feel about that now? What, like if somebody was going to ask you, you know, hey, Sam, I just got my license and I just got a bike and I'm thinking of traveling around the world. I would ask them how much common sense they've got. Because a lot of traveling um, and staying safe is common sense. It's taking it slowly. Um, it's thinking about what you're doing. It's treating other people with respect. It's accepting that you don't know something and doing your best to try and find out what it is that you do have to do. And quite often, there's somebody else that you can talk to. You can um, Nowadays, you can go online. Um, there's so much information that you can get online as a novice, um, even when you're out on the road. But, but that's more travel information. I'm, I'm thinking more motorcycle. Like another, I'm thinking of leaving with such um, uh, an inexperienced rider. Um, I don't see any reason why you shouldn't do it. You know, if I had um, had six months more experience on a motorcycle before I headed south, I might have scared myself too much to do it. Mm. Sometimes ignorance is bliss. Stupidity is not. And there's a big difference, I think, between traveling gently and using your common sense and thinking about what you're doing than there is going out blindly and throwing yourself into something, not thinking about what you're doing, um, using arrogance instead of your senses, 
Um, and yeah, you know, it's 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 the equivalent of somebody going to another country, which is obviously culturally different and not taking any time out to learn anything about the culture of the country that they're going to. Um, that's just daft. It's daft from a general travel point of view, but it's also daft from a good manners point of view. You can do all sorts of things without a clue that you're upsetting the local people because you haven't taken the time out. And also, you're missing an awful lot of opportunities because you have no idea about where you are and, what's, and what the possibilities are because you know nothing about the culture. Mm. I would say it's more important for somebody to learn about things like the culture and um, the road conditions and the, and the climate and the length of visas than it is to go out um, already trained as an expert rider. We're going to take just a quick break here, but stay with us because when we come back, we're going to talk about the fact that Sam's round the world trip was never meant to be what it turned out to be. Stay with us. You know what it's like when you've worked somewhere for one year, the experience you have, I mean, it's a fair bit of experience. Then three years, imagine three years or five years. That's a lot of experience. 10 years, that is a heck of a lot of experience. Moto Discovery, get this, has been doing what they do for over 40 years. <laughs> 40 years. They've been seeking authentic destinations or off the beaten path for motorcycle enthusiasts. They've been taking them to different places around the world, often sharing overlooked roads and destinations. Um, they also do an, an immersion training program, and that's in the U.S. that I'll tell you about in a minute. But first, sort of to give you the idea, an idea of the scope and expertise of Moto Discovery, I'm going to give you a list of their destinations. USA, Mexico, Costa Rica, throughout South America, Europe, Middle East, Asia, Cuba. That's a lot of destinations. And over 40 years in business doing these kind of trips, they've nurtured a lot of contacts, found a lot of special places, not to mention gained untold experience on how to run a trip to make sure it goes as smooth as possible and how to get the most from an adventure. Anyway, I mentioned the immersion training program. The immersion training program they put together with Bill Jergu, who we had here on the show a couple of weeks back from Dart Adventures. Um, it's unlike most programs you're going to find for training. What what they do, what's different with this, is they, they put you into a small group, 10 or less, I think is what it is, and they call it low testosterone environment, meaning low pressure, no machoism, that sort of thing. You learn your basic skills. Then once you have those basic skills, you head off on a real adventure with your instructors. And while you're on that adventure, you get real-world chances to try your new skills. And you have the advantage of having your instructor alongside to help you further develop those skills. Now, you know what it's like when you you learn something new. Um, you'll sit there in the classroom, you'll get it, you'll understand it, you know, or at, the, or at the grounds that you're working on, you'll get it. And then a few days later, a week later, it's gone, especially when it comes to riding adventure bikes, because you're doing so many things at once. There's a lot at stake here uh, for you. Immersion training, I like that because you're getting out there right after you learn the skills and then you're actually applying those skills. And I think that is really, really key. Anyway, you can find out more information about Moto Discovery, about the trips that they do and their immersion training. And I really encourage you to have a look at this at their website, motodiscovery.com. And when you're dealing with them, if you're, even if you're just inquiring or whatever, make sure you throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, motodiscovery.com. <laughs> Thank you. 
Get outfitted, get trained, get inspired, get going. The world is waiting. That's what they say at Overland Expo. And they also say that Overland Expo is the world's premier event for do-it-yourself adventure enthusiasts. And I know from the people that go to these events, these things are huge. I mean, with tons of information and things to experience for motorcyclists and four-wheelers alike. Now, I say events because there's now three, yes, three Overland Expo events each year in the U.S. There is Overland Expo West in Flagstaff, Arizona, Overland Expo Mountain West, uh, and that's the new one in Loveland, Colorado, and then there's Overland Expo East in Arrington, Virginia. Now, with those spread all across the country, you have no excuse to miss it. You can definitely find one, get pick the one that's closest to you or pick one that's on route for a trip that you're doing this year. Overland Expo West is um, May 15 to 17. Mountain West is August 28 to 30th. And East is October 9 to 11. And there's just a ton of motorcycle-focused presentations, skills programs, displays, not to mention all the travelers that are there that you can meet and talk with. Um, There's manufacturers there um, selling and displaying their products so you can talk with them direct one-on-one. There's just so much to do. Go to their website, overlandexpo.com, and book your tickets. Now, you need to get these tickets online. You need to buy them in advance because they are not available at the gate, okay? They're not available at the gate. You've got to get them online. Make sure that when you're doing it, when you're going to overlandexpo.com, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Overlandexpo.com. you headed off on your your trip that we're talking about here was it planned to be a around the world trip or were you heading down africa what was the idea <laughs> no it wasn't um the idea was to make it to um cape town if i didn't kill myself along the way which makes me laugh after what we've just been saying <laughs> so that's your that's your original goal cape town <laughs> yeah it was cape town um I decided that as a novice motorcyclist, perhaps there was an opportunity to raise some money for charity. So um, I started um, collecting sponsorship, um, well, you know, sponsors from school kids in particular um, and um, for um, two charities. One of them was Mission Aviation Fellowship, which is a charity that operates light aircraft in many developing world countries, taking medical supplies and doctors and nurses and things like that into remote areas. You know, sometimes where you hear about a a surgeon who will give up two weeks of his holidays and he'll go into um, the bush in Uganda and he'll spend two weeks in a small town um, taking cataracts out of people's eyes. Mm-hmm. Well, quite often Mission Aviation Fellowship will be the person that's taken him and or her and um, their supplies out into the bush. So I thought, well, if you're traveling through a continent like Africa, then you might as well do something that you can do um, to help a charity that's helping the continent. And the other thing was um, children in need in the UK, because I'm very conscious that um, children live in poverty all around the world and children live in poverty in this country too. So I would do something that might help a little bit here too. So I set off and the kids were sponsoring me for um, however many countries that I managed to get through. And there was one kid that said, I'm going to give my whole sponsorship to you because you're not going to make it past the first country. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm afraid he had to pay quite a lot. (laughs) So that money that you're raising, then you're putting it into the charity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. So your plan is to head to Cape Town. Did you make it Mm -hmm. to Cape Town? I did. Yeah, I made it down to the southernmost tip of Africa and um, 
stood and looked out at the ocean, Indian Ocean, um, on one side, the Atlantic on the other side, and just thought, wow, this is me. I've made it all this way. This is me standing at the southernmost tip of Africa. Wow, I didn't expect to be able to do that. Um, it was a really buzzy feeling. And then what? Oh, I'd already made a, um, a fiendishly cunning master plan. And um, by the time I got to Zimbabwe, I kept on thinking to myself, you know, if you go home at the end of Africa, which is what you're supposed to be doing and find a new career and so on, are you ever likely to be free enough again to do something like this? And it didn't take a lot of time for me to persuade myself that, no, I'd get wrapped up in responsibility again. You know, I'd take on the new career. And if I took on the new career, then I would feel responsible. And yeah, it would stop me being free. Um, might be fun, but it would stop me being free. And um, I kept on thinking, are there any other good reasons to go home? Well, no, not really. Are there any good reasons to keep going? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I, I booked myself on a container ship to go from Durban in South Africa across to Sydney in Australia. Um, and yeah, what a wonderful feeling that was when I paid the money for that. Um, funny enough, it was the cheapest way to get from Africa to Australia. Um, my bike went up on the deck and I didn't have to pay for it. It was just covered in oil and layers of plastic. And I paid for me and it was like having a, a good quality motel room. Um, you ate with the crew and really good quality food, um, lots of red wine. And part of the magic of this trip was that they let you go anywhere on this ship. Um, so even down into the engine rooms, which are just massive. The engines on these con um, container ships, just huge. But um, yeah, it's all gleaming brass, the smell of oil and um, the heat. Wow, um, impressive. Mm -hmm. But that was just another adventure. It was just something else that being on the road gave me the opportunity to do. So as you're going along, uh, each one of these things, I guess, sort of gives you another reason to stay on the road. I mean, just the way you describe that. I mean, and I would love to be on that ship and look around, in, in particular down in the engine room and all the mechanics of it. Mm -hmm. That's just another thing that sort of probably propels you for even further. Well, it does. And you see in the weather forecast um, that somewhere has a force eight gale um, and, and you just think, wow, that must be horrendous. Well, we had a force eight gale on this container ship. And so wow. I now discovered what a force eight gale at sea was like. And on a container ship, it's um, just like being on an enthusiastic roller coaster. But um, there was a yacht off to the one side and it was just disappearing down these massive waves for ages. And this container ship was just hammering through the waves. Um, sometimes it must have been almost disappearing into the waves and out the other side. But what a wonderful experience. And travel is like that. And it's one of the things that grips me so much about it. You never know what opportunity is going to happen. If you're looking out for opportunities, the world of possibilities is just fantastic. So you, you got to Australia. Mm -hmm. And what was your plan there? Um, I was hoping that I was going to be able to see parts of Australia that I hadn't been to before. I was hoping that I was going to find some casual labour along the way so that um, I could top up my coffers enough for me to be able to ride back to Europe through Asia. And um, yeah, I'm in Australia. It's what a wonderful continent that is. Um, it's quite spectacular and it's it's a land of extremes. Um, the difference between the coast and the centre of Australia, for example, chalk and cheese, 
Um, both require completely different mindsets. And I love the Australian um, she'll be right attitude. Um, the whole concept of, well, it's broken, let's fix it. Um, I, I, I like being in that sort of environment. It's a very positive place to be. Um, you mean they're more laid back than, than in the UK? Yeah, they're more laid back and they're more, in my experience, more willing to fix things, um, make them work again. Um, and I liked that a lot. Um, I, I love being able to fix something that's broken and make it work again. I love something that I might be discarding and turn it into something that does a great job um, for, as a, doing something else. Um, you mentioned topping up the coffers, and I, I was going to ask about that a minute ago. Um, has the money run out at this point? Or are, you, are you sort of looking no. for ways to finance? No. I mean, part of the... Um, the process of doing the trip down through Africa was, listen, you've no idea what you're doing. You don't know how long tires are going to last. You don't know how often you're going to break the motorcycle. Um, you've no idea how much it's going to cost. You may never have the opportunity to do something like this again. So why not just go for it? If you make it down halfway down Africa and you're not enjoying yourself, well, then you've spent hardly any of your money so you can go home. So I sold my house, my car, my furniture, clothes, just any, just about anything I could sell, I sold. Um, and what a good decision that was. Traveling down through Africa, I was um, wild camping, staying in um, campsites and cheap local hotels, you know, sometimes $1.50 a night, um, that sort of thing. Um, bed bugs, yep, they were there. Um, but th that really didn't matter. What mattered was that I could get my bike off the road and somewhere that was secure. And so I only stayed in places that had secure courtyards. Wonderful stories come from, you know, that thing alone. There was one night I was staying in um, outback Kenya and I'd rolled into this little town and there was a posh hotel and half a dozen pretty rough hotels. And just one of those had a courtyard and the courtyard was secure. It was made with sticks and flattened out oil drums that had been nailed on. So it was relative secure. And I went in and asked if they'd got a room and they had and it. Oh, it was the pits. Um, not the worst I've stayed in, but let's put it this way. It wasn't very clean and it was it was very basic. But I asked about security and they said, oh, we have a night watchman. So I thought, yeah, OK. So when settled into my room, had a shower which was basically just a pipe coming out of the, the ceiling, which somebody had stuck a tin can over the end with multiple holes in, and that was the, the shower rose. Well, it worked. It was fine. Cold, no um, doubt. Oh, yeah. But in that temperature, you were really happy to have the cold, and it wasn't really cold. It was just sort of um, cool. Um, but anyway, I went out to the bike and um, was standing watching it from a distance, and a man came up to it. And he's, it was quite an elderly man, and he stopped by the side of the motorcycle and... Uh, looked around and saw me and he said, Mr, is this yours? And I said, yes. And he said, may I touch it? I said, yes, of course you can. So he stroked my bike and it was just so nice to see. And then he said, um, I am the night watchman. I will take great care of your motorcycle. And I just thought, wow, what a, what a cool thing to have happened. And when I looked out of my window um, that night, he was sitting on the back of my bike with a bow and arrow, and he was doing radar sweeps across the courtyard with his bow and arrow. <laughs> just fantastic. And these are the sorts of things that I love so much about the travel, the people that you meet and the oddball things that happen um, that restore your faith in human nature. And it's just, yeah, we, we live in a kind world if we let it be. But I've you sidetracked you from your question. Haven't I? Somewhat, but but that's okay. <laughs> um, I, I was going to say about Africa, you sort of had to feel more at home there than what the average person would coming from the, the Congo. 
Yeah, I did. And one of the reasons that I chose Africa um, as to go to was because I wanted to know if my childhood memories were correct. Um, I remembered that Africa had a, a particular smell about it, particularly when the first rains came. And, you know, you might have had a long dry season, then all of a sudden the rain comes and it's, it deluges. And there is that particular rich, earthy smell that so much of Africa has when that happens. And it's the sounds of Africa that I wanted to know if my memories were correct. There's a lot of laughter in Africa and there's a lot of noise, um, crashing and banging and horns back beeping and people making things by the side of the road and, and so on. Um, were my memories of those things right? And I also had a fairly strong memory of um, the humour of Africa. It's, it's really Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, very simple sense of humour. And I wanted to see if my memory was right about that. And my memories were spot on with all of those. So with that was the reason that I chose Africa. Um, and yes, as a result of those things, I did feel more comf comfortable there. I wasn't afraid of um, black people, for example. They were people. There were some people that my senses were screaming, whoa, steer clear of this guy. He's not a good one. And so I turned around and leave. But mostly my senses were saying, well, they look interesting. Talk to them. You'll find out, find out something. And um, I did lots of times. Where did you go from Australia? Um, up into Indonesia. Um, that wasn't how I wanted it to be. Um, my last job was uh, in Australia was working for a film crew. I was the gopher. So literally go for this, Sam, go for that. And so I was running around getting cameras and um, reflection boards and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. One of the last days um, in Australia, I managed to slip a disc. I'd been abusing my back fairly heavily with um, fruit picking and I played a lot of sports when I was a kid. I was in one of the storage rooms and I just picked up some um, some sound equipment in big heavy boxes when somebody came through the door behind me and sent me flying. And um, as I hit the deck, um, I heard this crunch noise and rather a lot of pain. Um, now, the plan was that I was going to ship my bike to um, Indonesia while I was going back to um, or going to Germany to link up with um, a German girl called Birgit. I'd met her in New Zealand. And uh, she was riding a bicycle there and we'd got on really well together. Um, I wasn't looking for a girlfriend and she certainly wasn't looking for a boyfriend like me. But, but you know how it, would go, it works, it clicked. And we'd, we'd carried on writing to each other during Australia. Um, and then I thought, you know, actually, you need to see this girl. So the money, um, a big chunk of the money that I'd been saving, um, I spent on a flight to go to Germany to, to see her. Um, just to see whether, you know, we still actually got on really well together. Anyway, I managed to climb onto the plane and sat there for 11 hours in absolute agony and managed to ease myself out of the seat at the other end because I'd got on the flight praying that nobody was going to say, you're too injured to fly, you can't go. Mm -hmm. um, and when I got off the plane in Germany, Birgit took one look at me and you, you could see her almost smacking her forehead thinking, jeepers, what's going on here? Well, a couple of weeks of um, romance turned into six weeks of her trundling me around from one doctor to the next and to physiotherapists and all of that sort of thing. But yeah, she certainly showed herself to be one very, very special character. But anyway, the doctors told me I never ride a motorcycle again. But in the meantime, my motorcycle is on its way to um, Singapore instead of Indonesia. And well, I'd never find out if I could ride a motorcycle if I didn't go and try it. So... I flew back to Indonesia and spent the next three months 
doing physiotherapy exercises and walking a lot and swimming and all of the exercises that I've been given. And Indonesia is just amazing. Largest archipelago in, in the world and it's each island is different to the next and it's beautiful. Um, I was very sad that I didn't have the motorcycle there because you island hop on ferries and it's, it is pretty easy to get around. But um, yeah, well, um, silver linings. I could still move. I could still walk and do the other things. Um, got a ferry across to Penang um, off the coast of Malaysia, then used a bus through Malaysia and got to Singapore and then was faced with my bike in the harbour and could I ride it? And um, yeah, it was one of those crunch moments that you come across in life. The next few minutes were going to be, yep, you're carrying on with your trip around the world or that's it, you're stuffed, mate. At this point, is your back still bothering you or are you recovered? Oh, it's still bothering me. Oh, I see. Um, I'm still taking painkillers, um, and but I'm a lot better than I was. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't have been stupid enough to risk riding. I thought, well, you know, you won't find out whether you can unless you try it. And putting my leg over the bike um, for the first time taught me two things. The first thing was I was complete idiot because I hadn't been including in my physiotherapy exercises raising my leg over the back of a saddle movement because it's a very specific movement, isn't it? Yeah. And the other thing was climbing on back on the back of that bike felt like I'd come home. I was sitting where I should be sitting. And I rode out of the harbour with a few mishaps along the way, but that's another story, and made it back to the um, backpackers hostel that I was staying in and thought to myself, yeah, I think I can do this. And I spent the next um, weeks riding short days and walking a lot and it was, it was, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. I was you, really pleased. What do you mean, mishaps? <laughs> um, I got stopped on the way out of the harbour. Now, I had all of the right paperwork and the harbour was just a buzz of activity. Um, trucks and trains and um, people and bicycles and food vendors and um, people dressed in suits and shirts and ties and rushing in with sheaths of paper and there's noise and the smell of the food stores and all of this sort of stuff and quite large sections of it's cobbled and it's yeah it's a, it's a really um, frenetic sort of place and I've meandered my way through all of this lot without hitting anybody or falling off and one of the port guides decided that um, he was going to give me a hard time. So there's this man dressed in uniform and up went his hand and ab abruptly told to pull to one side. And uh, he stomps over to me and told me to empty out my panniers. And I'm just thinking, what, really? This, these panniers are packed like a 3D jigsaw puzzle and there are all these people around. And of course, by this time, we've got a crowd, haven't we? But I've got no choice. So I'm busy unloading everything and just thinking, well, I hope nobody nicks anything. Um, and I can my cooker and my clothes and my pots and pans and um, my film canister of, of, of curry powder and um, then my film canister of mixed herbs. And he's opening them all up and sniffing, taking them within his fingers. Um, he gets to my mixed herbs and all of a sudden he comes, he's excited. You in trouble now, he's shouting at me. You in big trouble. This Singapore, you not do something like this. And I'm thinking, what? They're mixed herbs. What's going on? And then the penny drops. He thought that I was smuggling marijuana in. And, oh, big time trouble in Singapore for smuggling drugs. Well, he attracts the attention of an officer and this officer came across and um, a, a lot of language, I think it was Malay they must have been speaking, very excited from the guard and very straight from the officer. And um, 
and the officer sort of indicates for the film canister to be passed over and he reaches in, pulls out a sniff, sniffs it and then shrugs his shoulder. But it's mixed herbs, he said in English and gave the port guard the, the canister back and turned around and left, leaving the poor port guard completely red-faced because there were enough people who understood English to know exactly what had just been happening. Anyway, so I shoved everything back in the panniers and left as quickly as possible before he could change his mind and I ended up getting stuck. You know, a couple of times while we've been talking, you've, you've mentioned about, uh, I guess, the way you see things. Now, that story could be told in a different way. There would be a frustration, um, indignance, you know, I mean, you, you could you could be so upset with that guy for wasting your time and for putting you through all that, but you don't. You, you look at it a different way and you, and you mentioned something else and I, and I thought it's sort of like, you know, like sort of like Sam when he goes down the road, he, he doesn't notice the potholes in the road. He notices the beautiful road that meanders through and just tries to avoid the potholes or deal with them. Uh, is that sort of your thought process with life? And I, I, I sort of think it is. Yeah, it is. Um, be aware of the potholes. Um, I, I guess what I'm enough. saying, Sam, sorry to cut you off, but I guess what I'm no. saying is I think you purposely ignore the bad and focus on the good. And I'm not saying that's bad. No, I guess I pay attention to um, the things that can go wrong, because if you don't, then you're not using your common sense. Um and if you're not aware of the things that can go pear-shaped, then you're running the risk of just dropping yourself in it all of the time. And why would you want to do that? One of my favorite sayings is, stop worrying about the potholes and celebrate the journey. Mm. It kind of says it, doesn't it? Yeah. There's so much right going on all of the time, but you can't ignore um, the risks. That would just be stupid. Well, and that's not just for travel either. That That's life. I mean, if you can mm-hmm. do that in life, you're a, a lot happier person than someone who is um, focusing more on, on even just the possibilities of things that can go wrong or the things that are wrong. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's absolutely right. So does that, is that just you? Is that something that you've been born with? And because and, I, I think this is a lot of times you find with personality. Some people have the, that personality that allows them to go through life with less worries. Are you one of those people or is that something you've learned to do? Um, I'm saying, um, cause that's given me a thinking moment. My parents were very courageous people who made a lot of happen, a lot happen with very little. And so I suppose I was surrounded with that from childhood, but then pretty much everything from then onwards has been, I, I guess I'm lucky in that I see the things, the negativities, I see the downsides, but I don't spend very much time in them because there's usually something else going on that's more fun, more interesting, and potentially less painful. Mm. And, and most of our fears are never realized. I mean, we worry about so many things the average person does. Um, and I would say pff, 95% of it, 98% of it never happens. Uh, I, I totally, totally agree. Uh, we were talking about this before we came on air, weren't we? Because you said to me, are you nervous? And you had a, um, a bit of a jokey tone in your voice when you asked it, but were, you were quite surprised when I said, yes, of course I'm nervous. Well, I mean, um, it's because we talk so much, you know, and mm. it's, so it's it's like two friends sitting down talking. So, I, mm-hmm. I, 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 yeah, I was surprised. I'm also nervous before I get on stage to do a presentation. Um, I'm nervous before I do... Um, a hard section of a ride. Um, I'm not afraid of doing it, and there's difference. For me, fear is a negative. 
Um, but respect for what you're going in to and trying uh, trying to build yourself up to do the best that you possible, possibly can in that situation. That is um, a very healthy way to be. And when I stop being nervous about the things that I find happening in front of me, those are the days when I'm becoming blasé. And um, yeah, there e that either means that I'm going to be in a dangerous situation or actually it's time to find something else to do. Has this thought process ever failed you while you've been traveling? This is another of those um moments. Um, I've dropped myself in situations by being um, too open-minded and too positive. Um, there was a time in South Africa, for example, that comes to mind where Berg and I were looking for a way to get on a container ship to go or a cargo ship to go from South Africa to South America. I'd had such an amazing experience going to Australia on one. I wanted Birgit to have the opportunity to do that too. And we'd spent three months going around all of the ports that we had found out had ships that were going to South America and um, knocking on ship agents' doors and explaining what we were up to. And these shipping agents, they were fantastic. Everybody got on board with the story and wanted to help us and were making telephone calls and this sort of thing. Nobody was being success. Um, and we had pretty much got to the stage where we were starting to think that we couldn't afford to um, get across to South America and have enough money to be safe. As enough, and as in have an escape route money if something were to go wrong. And we were in uh, Durban in South Africa, and uh, we stopped at some traffic lights, and the motorcyclist pulled up next door to us, and we nodded, and he nodded as you do, nice friendly sort of thing. And um, while we were waiting for the lights to change, we got talking, and um, he said, "Well, oh, I'm a shipping agent. I can help you. I have ships going all the time to South America. Um, come to my house for dinner." So I thought, wow, fantastic. I mean, the road is like this. Things like this happen just just like that. What I didn't realize was that Birgit's common sense and antennae was waggling like mad, as in, don't trust this guy. He's, he's not kosher. Um, anyway, we went to the house for dinner and... Um, after dinner, he said, come on, I'll show you around. Well, it's a lovely South African house. And he said, come down into my cellar. I have something special to show you. His cellar was full of mannequins dressed in Nazi uniforms. And he had a, a Nazi collection down there and all this sort of thing. And instantly, all of the hair on the, on the back of my arms went up. And Birgit's looking at me in horror. Um, and, yeah, we went – I mean, it's a bit of a long story. I'm not going to tell you at all. People have to buy my book, um, Distant Suns, to find the full story. There we are, a little bit of promo in there. Cheeky, <laughs> I know. Um, but um, it turned out to be a very unpleasant situation where for once in my life I lost my temper. And I very rarely ever lose my temper. I think it's, um, it's destructive. And, yeah, it's one of the it turned into one of the situations in my life that I'm really not proud of. Um, but it did have a silver lining. We did find our way across um, the Southern Atlantic and in one of the most bizarre ways that anybody could ever expect to get from one continent to the next. And this, again, is one of the reasons I love travel so much. So many mad things happen. Um, we actually managed to get ourselves passage on a luxury cruise liner to go from Cape Town to Buenos Aires. And it was cheaper for us to do that. Um, than it was to fly us and ship the bikes. With your bikes? You uh, got your bikes on the ship? 
yeah, the ship, the cruise line agent was just absolutely brilliant because um, he told us, yeah, um, I, I've got a cruise liner. It's um, it's going from Cape Town in six weeks' time. I'm pretty sure I can get you on there. Um, it'll cost you a thousand dollars. And we were both thinking, well, okay, thousand dollars, that's not bad. But oh, what about the bikes? Um, so we told him that we had the two um, BMW bikes, and um, he said, uh, "Now you've set me a challenge. Ring me back in a couple of days." So we just thought, oh, well, you know, it's it's not going to happen. It's going to be too ridiculously expensive. But hey, if you don't try, you don't get. And that's Birgit nudging me this time. If we don't try, we don't find out. Phoned him back and he said, yep, I've spoken to the captain of the ship. He's, um, yep, $1,000 um, and he's going to put the motorcycles on the ship's manifestors hand luggage. <laughs> So we didn't, we didn't have to pay. We had a, a cabin down, right down in the bottom of the ship, the tiny cabin, the sort of um, cheapskate cabin, but we didn't care. We spent um, 11 days going across the Southern Atlantic, eating steak and lobster and all sorts of other wonderful things. And after a year coming through Africa, we were skinny as anything. We hadn't seen food like this. So I must admit, we did pig out a little bit. And I would never have imagined myself to be on a cruise liner. But the other beauty of, of that was arriving in Buenos Aires, we met people who were taking six weeks to get their bikes out of the port. And our bikes were dealt with on the ship's paperwork. It took about 45 minutes. Mm. Um, and we were done. Because it's hand luggage. Yeah, well, yeah, but I don't know whether it worked that way. But um, let's put it this way. The customs officers were coming off the, the ship with carrier bags full of cartons of cigarettes and bottles of whiskey and gin and vodka and so on. So oh. I think we were included in that. They had their hands full, so to speak. <laughs> yep, hands full and happy. We're going to take a quick break here, but when we come back, Birgit enters the picture, changing Sam's life. And then Sam's kidneys begin to fail, and that changes his life forever. Stay with us. You ever seen a pair of boots, maybe your boots, that are sort of chewed up on the bottom where the foot meets the peg? Obviously, this is because the teeth are digging into your, your boot itself. Now, this is one of the design aspects that IMS considers when making your foot peg. They come up with designs that help reduce wear and tear, yet still achieve the grip. For instance, the ADV-1 and ADV-2 pegs, you'll notice that the teeth are dull, yet they use multiple rows in a unique design. And those multiple rows allow more contact points, which makes your foot stay on the peg, yet not dig into the sole of your boot. Now, on the rally pegs, they have quite sharp teeth on them, but they use what's called a staggered tooth design, which means a couple of teeth close together. So it's kind of like a bed of nails thought process. You know, stand on one nail, it goes through your foot, stand on a bunch of nails, and you're supported, yet you get incredible grip. These are two different approaches to solve the same problem with two different pegs. So it depends on your application. So you can kind of see why I'm so impressed with IMS foot pegs. The background work that's put into these pegs before they go into, even into manufacturing. Their website, imsproducts.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, please throw in there. You heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. imsproducts.com. You, you've thrown in Birgit into the mix here, and, and we haven't said anything about that. About I know you mentioned that you, you met her in New Zealand when you're riding in New Zealand, and that was obviously part of what you were doing in Australia. And then she decides to ride, but she's not riding um, on the back of your bike, is she? 
Um, Birgit came on the back of my bike in India and Nepal um, after Germany, and I'd made it from Indonesia through Southeast Asia and across into India. Um, we arranged that she would fly out to Kathmandu and she would come on the back of the bike for a couple of months just so that we could see you know, how good we were at traveling together. And um, we had an absolute ball and she managed to stretch it to three months. And at the end of that, we were just getting on so well. I never expected to find somebody with such an open-minded curiosity, resilience, determination, and just so much fun. And I said to her, look, at the end of, of the time together when she was having to fly home, look, I'm, you know, I'm going to South America next. Would you like to come with me? She thought about it for a millisecond and said, well, yes, but on two conditions. I want to go to Africa first. And I thought, yeah, okay, I don't mind going back to Africa. There's loads I haven't seen. And there's um, a lot of things that I would love to be able to show Birgit. Um, and her second condition was, I want to ride my own motorcycle. Now, when we met, she was riding a bicycle. Um, uh, she had got a, um, a motorcycle license. She passed it very quickly in Germany just before they changed the law and made it much more complicated to, to get your test. So it was relatively straightforward. But when she'd got a license, she'd never ridden a motorcycle. So I said, to her, well, look, if you're going to um, ride your own bike, then I'm not going to service and maintain it. You need to learn how to do all of that so that you know a lot about what's going on underneath you. And she's only five foot just... So she bought a, a beat-up old 1971 BMW R60-5, which was a rusting hulk under a tree, and uh, stripped it down with um, a chap, uh, a BMW mechanic, and um, rebuilt it so that she could learn how this thing worked. Just amazing. But um, there were problems with that. He was a bit of a, a shark, and we didn't realize how much. I was earning money in another part of the world at the time, and um, so wasn't watching closely what was going on, was living on the, the chap's reputation. Anyway, he was putting broken bits and worn out bits into the bike, and it really wasn't safe. And by the time Birgit got up to her family in North Germany, the bike was just a basket case. Um, but she had a friend, um, and he had a friend. Hey, this is motorcycling, isn't it? And he was a mechanic, and he stripped it down to, to nothing and, and rebuilt it with her um, so that this bike worked really well. The downside of it was the other stipulation that I'd given her was that I wanted to have a 1,000 kilometers of riding on dirt before we started riding in Africa together. Um, by the time we rolled out of the port in Mombasa in Kenya, she'd been riding a motorcycle for a total of 600 miles. Wow. I said she was plucky. Really courageous, determined girl. Uh, couldn't wish for a better travel companion. Is she like you? Are you guys the same or do you complement each other because you're opposites or where does she fit in? Um, we are similar in many ways um, and very, very different in others. She can have a flamboyant temper. Um, she is the sort of person that um, has extreme confidence in her ability to do things once she knows a good chunk about them. So, for example, we were in the middle of the Atacama Desert and something's going wrong with her bike and she's quite happy to strip it down. Um, to find out what the problem is. Whereas I would be more inclined to say, well, look, you know, the nearest town's 150 miles away. Let's limp to that so that if we need spare parts or something like that, um, we've at least got a water source and, and so on. Well, fortunately, she's um, smart cookie. And when I said all of that, she said, mm, yeah, you're right. 
And it's it's those sorts of conversations that would go on between us that um, made traveling together so well. But you know, she she brought a huge amount to my life and my journey through being herself. An example of that is I'm not a fan of museums. I've never have been since a kid. You know, being taken in around stuffy, boring, mislabeled, dusty museums and just being bored to tears. Um, but Birgit has a complete fascination with them. And so we went into a lot of museums on our journey. And my goodness, I'm so grateful that we did because I learned so much more about the places that we were traveling in um, than I would know um, if we hadn't done so. Um, and that's one of the beauties of traveling um, with somebody, isn't it? It's it's taking on board your travel companions' needs and desires and working with them, same as you expect them to do the same thing with yours. It's funny. I, I can hear your um, your bias there when you're describing the, the museum, or at least it was before, <laughs> mislabeled and dusty. <laughs> that, that has to come from somewhere. Oh, I went into plenty of those as a kid. My goodness, I wouldn't get, couldn't wait to get back outside again. You went from South America. You ended up in North America. What was that like? Mm. It was um, a reverse culture shock. Um, by that time, I'd spent um, six years um, and a bit traveling in mostly developing world countries. And heading up into Mexico was kind of a halfway house in that I still think of Mexico as being developing. Um, it was an interesting place to be, full of challenges. It was nothing like as scary as um, Chinese whispers had said it had been. We'd find out which parts of, of Mexico were dodgy at that particular time and didn't go to those parts. Um, we found it absolutely fascinating, the history, the landscapes, um, and we, we had an absolute ball there. Um, we then went across into Baja California, which was another step into the developing world and um, had a lot of fun there riding dirt roads and wild camping and um, seeing sections and of the Baja um, 1000 and all of this sort of thing. And then up into North America, into the United States. And um, I was absolutely stunned. Um, the last thing I'd read about the speed limits in um, the United States was that they were 50 miles an hour. And on the freeway heading away from the border, people were doing 70, 75, 80 miles an hour. And when I was looking up in the cabs, people were um, eating hamburgers, drinking coffee, talking on cell phones and steering at the same time. And I thought, good grief, what are these Americans? Have they all got four arms? Um, and then the undertaking and the overtaking, that freaked the living daylights out of us because we didn't know about that either. We come from countries where, you know, everybody drove on whatever side of the road they wanted to. But then suddenly being in a country where it was obviously legal to do it, um, and we hadn't expected it. Preconceived ideas, they're so dangerous. Find out as many of the facts before you can go. That's part of the culture thing I was talking about earlier. Yeah, we found those first days um, incredibly difficult. How does it end? What makes you decide that, okay, this is it? Well, we had an absolutely wonderful time in the United States and Canada. I mentioned reverse culture shock. Uh, we learned so much. Um, we had to relearn living in developed world countries. We were blown away by the landscapes and by the welcome that we received from the people, by the sheer mix of roads that we could ride. You know, we'd spent years riding in places where you had a possibility of a main road that might be asphalted or a gravel road. And you took whatever there was that was going to get you to where you needed to go to. 
um, in the United States, for example, all of a sudden we were we had freeways. We had main roads, we had back roads, we had gravel roads, we had dirt roads. We could choose what we wanted. And the freedom and the possibilities that that gave us was just mind-blowing to begin with. But then just another sense of freedom. Um, heading up into Canada equally and the scenery there and the welcome. Wow. Um, fantastic. Um, dropping back down into the United States, um, the sensation of impending doom for me was coming because by this time I'd been on the road for eight years and I was aware that the trip had to come to the end. I mentioned earlier on that I wouldn't end a trip broke again or in debt. And I was aware that, you know, North America is not as cheap to, to live in and to travel in as a developing world country. Our budget was still extremely low because we found so many places to wild camp. We only stayed in motels twice in the time that we were in um, North America. Um, but the budget was still going, um, gas, food, etc. We arranged for the bikes to be shipped home um, from New York, which was the logical thing to do. And uh, we had a friend who lived in New York. I'd met um, John Santella in year one in Africa. He had come on the back of my bike in Tanzania for a month. And anybody who's read my book Into Africa knows exactly who I'm talking about. He's the guy who was on the back of my bike when um, we had the accident that ended up with me being thrown in jail. Um, and uh, yeah, that's still the scariest experience in my life. That anyway, was John was, yeah, that was Africa. Mm. Um, so we had a lot of fun there for a few weeks and then created the bikes up and off they went. And and yeah, there was a sensation of um, unreality of this time. Um, eight and a half years, and it was it was ended. But my sanity in part was kept because we found work relatively quickly as soon as we got back. We were working on um, renovating semi-derelict houses and we were mostly living in the premises that we were building. So no rent and no commute costs. We were able to earn money with minimal overheads. And I decided that I wasn't going to treat the UK as the end of the trip. I had changed a lot over the eight and a half years. And I decided what I was going to do, I was going to treat the UK as another country on the trip, but just one that I was going to spend longer in because I was discovering so many things that I hadn't seen before, hadn't taken note of because I wasn't the same person. And lots had changed anyway during eight and a half years of being away. What was a main road was now a four-laned highway, um, taking you round the tiny little villages and places like that. So yeah, that really helped me keep um, my sanity. Um, but I think in my heart, I was already planning the next trip and that helped. You you haven't continued to travel around the world now. You're sort of basing it from the UK. Um, yeah, I know you're right. going on smaller trips. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Um, I suppose about... Um, a year into being back, um, I'd written a few magazine articles while I was away and um, people were writing into the magazine editor and saying, you know, we like Sam's articles. When's his book coming out? Well, I hadn't any intention at all of writing a book. I got one of the worst grades in English language at school that you could possibly get and still pass. So this for me was, well, why would I even think about it? But I had written a journal every day. And I had enjoyed writing the magazine articles. And I thought, well, look, if people are saying they like the articles, why don't I try a book? Um, it's like setting off on a new adventure. If you don't try, you won't find out if you can. 
So at the end of long days working on the houses, I'd come in and start tapping out my story. One of the disadvantages was that I didn't know how to use a computer, but Birgit taught me how to do that um, while I was writing. And so off I went and um, the first book came out and um, people liked it and said, well, what happened next? So slowly over the next years, the four books um, came out and it was a lot of fun doing that because the books have allowed me to share the fun. You know, I'm very conscious that most people, the reality for them is that they've got responsibilities that they can't shove to one side. It would be irresponsible of them to do it. And I'm talking about kids, elderly parents, or whatever, you know, of that ilk. So through the books, I'm able to share the road and the fun and the quirky things, the mad things with those people who can't go. But I'm also very conscious there are many people who just love their own countries. They're curious about other countries, but they've got no intention of going at all. But they love reading about them, so I can share the fun with them. But I guess the other third, the third group that I've, I've written the books for are those people who kind of think, well, mm, I wonder if I could, and I kind of like the sound of that. So my books are a bit of a nudge to them, because if a novice like me can go off and do something like this, then pretty much anybody can, so long as they've got common sense and respect and have got the questions why and how in their minds. And because in my books, I write about the stupid things that I do and how I get myself out of those situations, people can learn from them too. It's not just a straight travelogue, I did this, I did that. A lot of people have done trips, um, you know, long trips, shorter trips. They've written books about it. Um, maybe they've went around, done a few presentations and then they sort of move on with their life. You know, they go and mm-hmm. they do whatever they're doing. Your life is really all about, I mean, you, you know, you're probably one of the best known names in adventure motorcycling right now, I think. And you do talks all over the place. People love to sit and listen to you talk about your trips, about the trips you still do. Why is it that that's still something you're doing? Like, how, how does that become what you do now, as opposed to just saying, okay, now it's time to go and get that corporate job that I left and, and pick up where I left off? Oh, you're right. I could earn an awful lot more money um, being back in business than I earn now. Well, I'm um, sorry. And I should have said that because I, I thought about that before I, I, I posed the question, because I was thinking that there's not a lot of money to be made here. And it's like pushing a ball uphill. You know, it doesn't do it on its own. It's not like going to a job every day. There's so much relief to go in and work for somebody and pick up your paycheck here. You got to you got to work this thing. Oh, absolutely. Um, I enjoy the challenge. I enjoy meeting new people all of the time. I enjoy sharing the fun of the roads. I get a buzz out of encouraging other people to go and do it. I guess also I'm, um, how can I put this? Um, I, I suppose I am a bit of a, um, one, I, I'm, I'm part of a revolution against the mainstream, the unscrupulous sections of the mainstream media. In the West, we are constantly bombarded with negatives about um, other countries in other parts of the world. And from my experience, those countries are full of interesting people um, doing the same things as we do in our countries, roof overhead, food and stomach, um, education for the kids, money there for medical aid, something stashed away for um, old age. And I love the opportunity to introduce the people that I've met along the way and introduce something about the characters and the customs and the cultures um, that I've met along the way. It's a fun thing to do, but I like people and I love living in the world that I live in. It's, it's great to share. Um, it's good fun. It's a worthwhile way of living life. Mm. 
eight and a half years on the road, four books out. You're sort of a travel advocate now, as you just said. You you like to tell people that things aren't as they may have believed from the stories that they're seeing. What has changed with you since that trip? Not from the trip, but as a result of things that have happened since you've come back. Another moment. Um, you know, when several years back in, I tried getting back into the corporate world. Um, one of the things that I've been wondering in the last year or so of the trip was all this knowledge I have about these different countries, what on earth am I going to do with it? How can I make any difference to world life, other people, et cetera, et cetera? And then um, a friend who owned a law firm invited me to come and join the um, immigration department. And all of a sudden, I'm dealing with clients who are from countries that I've been to. And the connection and understanding what their problems um, were or more about them because I understood their own culture um, was a fantastic thing to be able to do. I ended up being practice manager for the law firm, which was great. Um, But then I suddenly realized that I was back doing exactly the same type of thing that I'd been doing when I was in retail management. Stupid hours, no time for um, for social and for friends. And um, Birgit was very tolerant of me during this time because, you know, I said to her, hey, look, you know, we've been on the road all of this time. Uh, I need to get back onto the corporate path and I need to be earning money again. And we need to be built, feathering the nest and all of that sort of stuff. So she was encouraging, but she could also see that, you know, I was just burning out again. So anyway, this is this, I decided that I would um, stop doing that and I would write the second book. People, um, the first book had been out for a couple of years by that time. And I thought, well, you know, you might be a one book author only, but if you don't try the second one, then you'll never find out. But I think what allowed me to do that was that I had realized that um, actually when we were traveling, we taught ourselves that you need very, very little to have a good quality, happy life. Um we didn't need all of the trappings of Western society. We needed um, a roof over our heads, a comfortable bed, food in our stomachs, and enough money to keep our bikes working properly and for us to go off and do trips. Um, By narrowing it down to those things, um, it was actually quite um, an invigorating, enlightening feeling. It was, um, yeah, it was liberating. Sam, are are you um, comfortable talking about your kidney? Yeah, of course. Can you tell that story? What happened there? Okay. Well, um, just over eight years ago, um, my kidney started failing. Okay. Now, put and that it, in perspective. Sorry. Uh, where Where is that from when you came back from your trip? Um, oh, this is, oh gosh, how many years after? Um, I don't know, 10, 12 years after the trip had finished, the big okay. trip. So you're settled uh, in the UK at this point? Yep. And doing our shorter trips, you know, a couple of months here, a couple of months there, that mm-hmm. that sort of thing. But um, anyway, so um, I'm suddenly advised that my kidneys are failing and they're failing rather rapidly. It turns out that I have a hereditary disease um, in years gone by. People didn't know what it was. Um, I remember my great uncle Jim, he was completely overweight and um, a smelly man because his kidneys just were not functioning. So his body wasn't processing the fluid and... Um, et cetera, et cetera. Poor chap. To be living like that and not have a clue what was wrong with him and just getting iller and iller and more and more lethargic. Anyway, um, I'm one of the lucky generation because it's known what it is. 
But um, when the doctors diagnosed what I'd got, they said to me, well, okay, um, you're going to have to go on dialysis and you do need a kidney transplant, but it might be that you might not get one for 10 years if you're still alive. I have a rarer blood group. And that means that the chances um, are less likely to come up of getting a transplant. Now, I'd always been on the donor list myself. So if anything had happened to me when I was in the UK, then anybody was welcome to any of my bits that were going to be of use. So my corneas, kidney, heart, whatever. And so I felt quite comfortable about suddenly needing a new kidney, but resigned myself to the fact that it was unlikely I was going to get one. So the National Health Service here kitted me out with the equipment to do home dialysis. It's something called peritoneal dialysis. And you have what's called um, exchange sacs. So overnight, um, fluids are pumped into your peritoneal um, cavity. And um, a lot of blood vessels run very close to that. So during the night, the poison is drawn out of your body. Um, What the kidney would normally do, it would pass the poisons that you naturally take on board through foods and things like this. Um, and get rid of through your urine, when your kidneys aren't functioning, that doesn't happen and hence you get the build-up of poison. So these peritoneal exchange bags every night would be taking the poison out of my body and we would be able to do that at home. So I was considering myself to be extremely privileged that I was going to be able to do that and I'd sat down and I'd started designing a trailer to tow behind my bike so that I could carry these exchange packs and we could go away for one or two weeks at a time. Um, they had to be temperature controlled. So I was having fun working out three different ways of controlling the temperature on these things, et cetera. It was, you know, I was just thinking, well, okay, this is what you've got. Um, how can you still carry on living your life um, as best as you possibly can until, well, you can't anymore. And then you'll think again. And um, I had a huge stroke of luck. The night after my birthday, I had a phone call, two o'clock in the morning. We think we've got a match for you. Can can you get here? Well, we live in about um, an hour and a half away from the transplant hospital that I was lined up to you. So, hell yes, we'll be there. Straight down the stairs, jumped in the car and off we went. When I got to the hospital, they said that the kidney had come from somebody who wasn't very well and it wasn't a perfect match, but I was the closest. Did I want to risk it? And I said to them, well, with a 10-year if button, maybe absolutely let's get it in there let's see what happens what can go wrong it doesn't work then we'll just have to take it out again went in operation happened and the man on the ward in the bed opposite me he had the other of the two kidneys that were donated and he was up and about the next day it was weeks before my kidney started working and they were about to take it back out again um and I think my, my new plumbing heard the surgeon one day say, well, I think we're going to have to take it out because the next day it started working and it's been working wonderfully ever since. And I cannot believe my good luck. Anybody who is on the list as an organ donor has full respect from me because I think that anybody on that list is absolutely amazing. And I know that anybody who's been fortunate enough to receive a donated organ will be raising their hands and clapping as they, as they hear that comment. Um, It makes such a massive difference. I would probably be dead by now. If I wasn't dead, then I would be stuck indoors and surviving from one day to the next. And poor Birgit and my family, they would all be having to cope with that side of things. Anybody knows somebody who's um, heavily having to dialyze knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's not a good place to be. Does it affect your travel now? Um, It makes my travel insurance booming expensive. 
Um, it means that I have to carry a lot of anti-rejection drugs. But even that's got better over the years. I started off, I'd have to carry a mini suitcase full of the drugs. And that's narrowed down as um, my body's become more accepting of this um, foreign thing in it. So um, I have to take less drugs. I have a sugar intolerance because of um, the transplant, which means that I can no longer do things like drink beer and wine and um, um, traveling in the States is quite difficult because so much food has sugar in it. Um, I spend a lot of time in the supermarkets reading labels. But um, there's more price to pay. I'm still riding my motorcycle. I'm still going out and exploring and enjoying this amazing world of mine. And um, I'll forever be grateful to the man who um, wrote it in his will and told his family um, that that's what he wanted. Um, my life is a really good place to be, although there are restrictions. And I dread falling off a bike and a handlebar punching me and my new kidney. That would not be wise. Mm. But, well. The the uh, the back injury, we didn't talk about another the accident <laughs> that you had. Uh, I know you've oh, a few accidents, but I'm thinking of the one where you, you end up, your face smashed and the, and the glass in your eyes. And we didn't, we didn't talk about that. Mm. But I mean, and, and the kidney, you're one lucky guy. I am. Think, think I'm, I'm very lucky in my unluckiness. Things go wrong all the time, but there is always something that happens wonderfully as a di direct result. I think, I mean, I can be really positive about it, but it is, it, it's, it's hard on, on Birgit and my family and um, her family when they know that, yeah, he's done something again. Um, <laughs> because, yeah, it's, I think it's always harder for the people who are surrounding somebody who's um, battling with a health issue than it is for the person who's dealing with it. Sam, I really appreciate the time you've taken and I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jim. It's been fun. And um, yeah, thanks for putting me on the spot and making me say um a few times. <laughs> Speaking with world traveler, author, and speaker Sam Manicom from his home in the UK. You can find Sam's books on any bookstore shelf, or you can get it from his website. His audiobooks are also available on Audible. And uh, if you check his schedule, you can probably find a venue in the coming year that Sam will be presenting at. Sam's website is sam-manicom.com. And of course, that link will be in the show notes for this episode. This episode of Adventure Rider Radio was made possible in part by the support of Max BMW at maxbmw.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And anytime you're dealing with these companies or anybody we have on the show, we'd love it if you'd throw in there that you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps
wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, who works the background here. And of course, you, the listener, thank you very much for being a part of this. Remember, all of our shows are available anywhere you find podcasts. And don't forget, we have another show called ARR Raw that comes out monthly, roundtable talks about motorcycle travel. It's a group of us on there. It's a lot of fun. I encourage you to go look at that show as well. And we would love you to rate our shows everywhere you find podcasts. Please go out there and rate them. And if you're not doing it already, consider becoming one of our patron supporters. Drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com and click on support. My name is Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. Joe Rust from JoeRust.com and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Hey!